Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. So tonight we're going to be in we're going to be in Second Kings chapter eighteen, and we were here Tuesday night and we went through two chapters, chapter seventeen and eighteen, and it's really the the climactic ending of those ten tribes of the north. And as they come to their end, the focus will shift for the next hundred years plus to the southern kingdom. So remember, Solomon died. The kingdom of Israel nine twenty two B C becomes separated. Ten tribes in the north. Judah and Benjamin together in the south, and about 40 kings total during this time. The northern kingdom was taken away in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom, 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. The northern kingdom's tribes never came back. The southern tribes did after 70 years in fulfillment of many prophecies, including that which was spoken by Jeremiah to Daniel. But before we look at the great King Hezekiah, in chapter 18, I'm just going to read to you briefly a couple of verses that summarize Hosea, the last king of the northern kingdom. And remember, the northern kingdom is easy to follow. There were 19 kings and none were good. You never get lost. They were, they're all bad. The, the best of the, the bad were bad. And, you know, it's Ahab and all those guys. So I just want to read to you about Hosea and his end because we're going to use a little bit of contrasting of Hosea, the last king of the north, with Hezekiah, the great king in the south, because they had parallel reigns for about a few years. And so I just want to draw this comparison. In the 12th year of Ahaz, so this is chapter 17, in case you want to know, but I'm just going to read it. In the 12th year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahaz was Hezekiah's dad. Hosea, the son of Elah, became king of Israel and Samaria, and he reigned nine years. Not a long time, nine years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel who were before him. That's an interesting detail. Shalamanser, king of Assyria, came up against him, and Hosea became his vassal and paid him tribute money. And the king of Assyria uncovered a conspiracy by Hosea, for, that is, he had, Hosea had sent messengers to, to the king of Egypt and brought no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he had year by year. And therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Now, Chapter 17 goes on to tell in further detail about the siege of Samaria. It was a seven-year, excuse me, a three-year siege of the capital of the northern kingdom, how they were taken into captivity. The Assyrians would strip you naked. They'd put the, the, the hooks in your ear, and they'd haul you off to slavery, and they'd displace you, and they'd put you in other areas where they'd displace those people, and they'd take the previous displaced people and bring them to your area so no one could ever settle in and be comfortable with where they'd been relocated, and ultimately they'd be dependent upon the Assyrian government to watch over them and to be their master and to pledge loyalty to Assyria. That was part of their strategy. They were a great world power, the Assyrians, and that's what they did. Now, as we come to chapter 18 in Hezekiah, in a contrast to Hosea, Hezekiah is quite the opposite. So we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 18. Now we read of Hezekiah in contrast with Hosea. Now, it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, 
king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. So that's 54 years, his life. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars. And he cut down the wooden image and broke down in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Neshutan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, that is the Lord, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was with him and he prospered whatever he did. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He subdued the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territories from the watchtower to the fortified city. So that's the summary of his life. Now, the the rest of this chapter and the chapter behind it and even more behind that is Hezekiah. Hezekiah gets a lot of attention in Chronicles as well as in the book of Isaiah. His encounter with the king of Assyria and the events that happened when the Assyrians besieged Jerusalem is recorded for us three different times. It's almost like the Gospels, right? Like in the Synoptic Gospels, you'll get a story three times with three different perspectives from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And this, the story that follows this, which we'll get into more than, well, certainly be related to next week's topical, it was the siege of Jerusalem that happened and how he persevered through that siege and God delivered him in it. Hezekiah this, this verse 4 where it says, excuse me, verse 3, where it says he, he, did, he did according to all that his father David had done. Now, 19 kings in the north, Hosea is the last one. We were told that he did evil, but not as much evil as all that came before him. So listen to this, pay attention. Hosea was the best of the worst. Did you catch that? Hosea was the best of the worst. Hezekiah, he's the 13th king. You know, we had Friday the 13th yesterday, so lucky 13, come on down. Hezekiah on lucky 13. He's the 13th king of Judah. Now, there's 20 in Judah, but they, they go through them pretty fast. The last four kings of Judah, like bang, 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 during the Babylonian siege and whatnot. But he's number 13 in the list of 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. And of the 12 that came before him, it never says what it says about him. It says that they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, they did not remove the high places, or like his dad, who was very evil that we studied last week, he he built high places. He made things worse. He did whatever he wanted under every green tree, emphasized all these things, all that kind of stuff. So his dad was pretty much the worst of the kings of Judah. So king number 12 in Judah, the worst. So there was a time when Ahaz was king and Hosea was king. So he had the worst of, of the kings of Judah with the best of the bad kings of Israel co-reigning and at, really at war against each other. But Hosea was the end. So Hezekiah, because it says that he did all that his father David did. So now we're going 200 years back to King David. So 12 kings did right, didn't do right like his dad did evil, but there's 12 kings, 200 years, and they did right, but they did, nonetheless, they did not remove the high places. And those are the places of self, self-governed self worship, how people chose to worship and do whatever they wanted to do. And I, it was unacceptable to God. And when you study it in detail, it's just like, it was not acceptable to God. 
But it was more like the, the personal sins that people chose to do and the political kings, they would do good things. were like, you know what? I'm not going to come to your house and police you in your backyard. But Hezekiah's like, well, I am. I am. I'm going to do that. I'm going to remove those high places. And if you want to have a coup or vote me out of office or anything like that, I'm in power right now. And I'm 25 years of age. And I know what I'm going to do. And I'm going to get things done. And I'm going to deal with this. So he did what no one else. Think about this. 200 years is a long time. That's like from, you know, the War of Independence, you know. 1776, 82, 83, George Washington, 200 years, the bicentennial. You remember that? You know, 1976, 200 years, add the change we got. 200 years is a long time. It's a long time to wait for a human being, male or female, to rise up and just say, you know, I'm going to break the cycle of incompleteness here. I'm not just going to settle for doing what's right, but not dealing with this. I am going to find another gear and I'm going to do more than anyone's done before me. And in the case of Hezekiah, it is ironic because he's the best of the, of the good. And at the same time, Hosea's the best of the worst in the north. I just find that ironic. And a couple of things they had in common comparatively, because they are back to back and they are comparative in the text overall. Hosea was made a vassal state of the great Assyrian Empire. And he got the idea that Egypt, Pharaoh, would be a better master than the Assyrians. And so he sought to do a deal with Egypt to deliver him and fight for him, pay them money, deliver me from the Assyrians. We've had enough of the Assyrians. And that plan did not work for him. You know, king of Assyria sacked him, took three years. Man, three years got him just angrier and took them all away. And that was the end of that. Well, interestingly enough, we're told from other stuff in the scriptures that mainly Isaiah, who was also contemporary of these guys, like I mentioned Saturday, that Hezekiah thought to make a deal with Egypt. He sought to make a deal with Egypt as well. And it didn't work for him. That's actually part of the text in chapter 18 later on. When the Assyrians besieged Samaria, Hezekiah would have been aware of it, knowing that that was probably coming his way because they're just going to come south and do the same thing to him. And in fact... The Assyrians came in to besiege Hezekiah as well. So the commonalities of Hosea and Hezekiah is they reigned at the same time, the best of the worst and the best of the best. They both sought deliverance through Egypt to no avail. They both sold off, sold off everything they had to appease the Assyrians to no, to no avail to stop what Assyria was going to do. They both were besieged by the Assyrians. One was destroyed, the other was not and was delivered. That's the important element to the overall panoramic story of these two men contrasted. One made really bad choices and one made really good choices. They both made some bad decisions in the sense of trusting in Egypt. They both did the best they could under difficult circumstances. Give the Assyrians all your money, all your wealth. Hezekiah did the same thing. He made the best decision out of choices that were all bad decisions. We talked about that Tuesday night. But in the end, Hosea disappears in the annuals of history to be nobody. And Hezekiah becomes one of the greatest heroes that we have in the entire Bible. Which reminds us that choices add up. They create a compound effect. And and macro big choices lead to good micro choices. And they build a life of, of faith or unbelief. 
and they build a legacy of really good things for eternity or really bad things for eternity when you leave this brief journey we call life. Hezekiah is a superhero in the Bible because that distinction in verse 3 that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father David did. He goes all the way back to David. When you're compared to David favorably, and it doesn't say, yet he did not remove the high places, it's, it's incredible. And so we look at Hezekiah tonight. Someone heard this study on Tuesday night, and they said that the Lord, as they were listening to it, the Lord gave him the word, all in. That was the whole thing about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was all in. And the, these people that followed up with me from hearing the message, they said, hey, we listened to that setting. We decided that's the word from the Lord for us this year. We're going to be all in like Hezekiah was all in because he was all in like no kings of 12 before him or any of the 19 in the north that came over, you know, before him. Over 40, you know, like over 30 kings and none had done what he had done. And it's a reminder to us that regardless of what's going on in our exterior environment, geopolitically, even in our family environment, that we all have a self-determination with the Lord to decide what we're going to do with our life. Are we going to be the best of the worst? Are we going to be average for the good? Or are we going to be best of the best? And it doesn't matter who, what the Assyrians are doing, the king of Egypt, or anything else. It's us. It's us. And the sooner we accept responsibility for our behavior, our attitudes, our actions, and our choices, the better off it is for us to be super fruitful for the kingdom and step into eternity with a great legacy. Once we really accept, you know, we always say the sign of adulthood is when you accept responsibility for your actions, right? That's when you know little boys have really grown up and become men, when they actually accept full responsibility for their actions. And once you do, as a male or a female, you're liberated to just flourish with the Lord with whatever God has for you from here to eternity. And Hezekiah was all in, and he flourished. He was the best of the best. And I think I can speak for most of us tonight. When we think about what we want to do with our lives in 2023, I think in principle, we certainly want to be the best of the best before the Lord. I don't want, we're not here on Saturday night in the rain to be average for the Lord. We want to be the best of the best. And we're certainly not here to be the best of the worst. We're here to be the best of the best. So let's look at three things. There's actually quite a there's more than three. There's about eight plus in this, these verses we read, verses one, three. But three things I want to really focus on here tonight for our application. First point, number one, he removed the things that needed to be removed. So as it says he did, all the Lord did, it starts with what would seem to be a negative. He's identified by what he would not associate with. He's identified by what he would not tolerate, kind of like David and Goliath. David is really introduced to us by what he would not tolerate. He would not tolerate a blasphemous giant 40 days in a row coming out and cursing the armies of God and the living God. He would have none of it, and he went right after that giant in total faith, certain of victory. David is really introduced to us by what he would not tolerate. Who is this giant to blaspheme against the Lord? Take me to the king. I'll fight him. I don't need Saul's armor either, man. This guy, he's coming down. That is unacceptable in the land of God's people of covenant. And we'll have none of it. So really, David himself was identified, introduced to us in 1 Samuel chapter 17, by what he would not tolerate. And I said not just too long ago, just a month or two ago, I want to be identified by what I'm for as opposed to what I'm against. 
And I think we would say yes and amen, right? Like, I'm for life. I'm for people being happy. I'm for good choices. You know, I'm for the fear of the Lord. I'm for obedience to the scriptures, living by faith. But nonetheless, when you're for those things, inevitably, because you're for light, there's darkness. And when you stand for the light, you become identified by what you are against. Because darkness is darkness. Moral darkness is moral darkness. And the Bible in Genesis 1 draws the distinction between physical light and darkness in the very first chapter. And John chapter 1 in the, in the Gospel of John draws the distinction between moral light and moral darkness in the very first chapter following the principle of Genesis. And Jesus is the light of men. Then it goes on to say in John that men love darkness. Or it says that men wouldn't come to light because they love darkness. So we know when a person commits their life to Christ, they're a new creation. And in Adam, all sin and die, but in the second Adam, we're all made to life. And because we're a new creation and we've passed from death to life, there is going to be an identity of life which is a reproof of death. And we're going to be in the light, and the light shines in darkness. And as Jesus even said, the darkness doesn't like it. Because men love darkness, they don't come to the light. That's what Jesus said, morally. So we realize as the church of Jesus Christ for 2,000 years on planet Earth, from the book of Acts, chapter 1, chapter 2, day of Pentecost, to this day, though the church does many wonderful things, universal church throughout human history, many wonderful things. The church does so much good. Whatever anyone would want to accuse the church of Jesus Christ for things that are not good, they can't say that the word of God's not good to bring good on humanity. People can misrepresent the word of God, and they can say that, but they can't say that God's not good in his word, and that God doesn't have a good plan from his word. And lots of good women and men for 2,000 years have done really good things for the human experience. My wife's reading a book about that, I can never get his name right, like Jonadiah Hudson, you know, the, the guy that went to Burma back in the day. But the women were so low in society at that time that when this is, you know, modern India, that area, that when their husbands died, they were burned alive on the funeral pyre for their husbands. The, the, the society refused to recognize the identity of the woman or the rights of the woman and all those things. But the gospel of Jesus Christ elevates women, for in Christ there's neither male nor female. And women are elevated. And yet the irony of people who attack the church, they would say the church suppresses women. God liberates women to be fully woman the way he made Eve in the garden before sin and all of her beauty. And we're told in the New Testament what kind of women women are to be, whose daughters you are, like Sarah. We're told that. For 2,000 years, the church has made the world a better place for women, wherever the gospel has been received. It's made the world a better place for the underprivileged. It's made the world a better place for orphans and widows and all those things. We've, we've, we, we established education in the colonies. The church did that. Not the world, not the secular humanists, not the Marxists. The church did. We built hospitals we save people. That's what the church does. So you see, when we think about um, our identity and all the good we do, we do do good. But, but the devil is the master of taking that which is good and making it look evil and taking that which is evil and making it look good because he's the father of lies. So when you, you would think it's good that this is the definition of gender, there's a definition of marriage, there's a definition of life and all these things, and it's good and it's true, just, and noble and praiseworthy according to God's word, you would think society would take that. But as I've mentioned, we've learned in the human experience that you go from tolerating evil to accepting the evil 
to enjoin evil, to participate in an evil. And Romans chapter 1 tells us that it's not just doing evil that condemns people to hell. It's being in agreement with what is evil. So we have to be identified by what we're against because of what we're for. And because we're for life, and we're for women, and we're for children, and we're for the innocent, and we're for justice and all these things, and Christ is Lord of our lives and Lord of his church, his blood, his resurrection, his baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's who we are. An absolute truth from Genesis Revelation. So we are for these things, which the world perceives often when they want to live in darkness, that we're against things that are contrary to the Lord. Aren't you glad that he laid down his life for sinners and doesn't wink with sinners and shuffle the feet and do it with them? I mean, aren't you glad that, that he's for the widow and he's for the orphan? And that he's for Down syndrome kids and he's for physically handicapped and mentally challenged? Aren't you glad he's for, for everybody on planet Earth? Aren't you glad he doesn't throw anyone under the bus? I sure am. Because that, that liberates us to look at every life and know it's, it all has value. And if God determines a life is done, that's it for him to determine, not me. See, and the reason in our country, that politicians cannot consider infanticide in the womb infanticide is because they've accepted it for so long, they've, they've seared their conscience. And so we're stunned that hundreds of congressmen and women can come out and say that even if the baby's born alive, surviving abortion, it should still be killed. That's infanticide. That's infanticide by any rational person's mind. See, if a person doesn't think it's infanticide in the womb, okay, you don't think it's a baby. But now that it's out of the womb, you know, that, people go, that's called murder. But you don't want to call it that. And see, how can you do that? Because people ask me, how can 200 plus politicians not think that that's infanticide? See, Brian Broderson this week said he compared these politicians to the Nazis and what they did at, Nurem, at uh, you know, Auschwitz and all these other places. This is how it works. I just read Romans 1 today in my devotion, and God remember how it works. You sear your conscience on something that's light, and you, you, you accept darkness then you can't discern, you, you keep going down a slippery slope. So if you don't accept it as a human being in the womb, you no longer, you've already seared your conscience that it's not a human being outside the womb. So now we have over 200 politicians that run our, our federal government saying that that's not a human being worth living outside the womb if it survives an attempted abortion. That's, that's murder. That's genocide. It's emphasized on a genocidal that's such a word level. That's no different than the Germans determining that a Jew is not worth living. And once you determine, determine that a Jew is not worth living, then you can execute every Jew. And you can put them on trains. You can take their wealth. You can rape them. You can murder them. You, you can shoot them in cold blood. Because you've determined that all Jews are not worth living. And you can do the same with Romanian gypsies and other people you don't like on, in Europe in 1939 to 1944. That's what you do. See, this is what societies have done for a long time. The Japanese did it to Koreans when they occupied Korea, you know, pre-World War, after World War I, before World War II. This, this is what the Chinese have done to each other. This is, this is what Mongols did. This is what Russians did to Tartars, you know, the Turks. And, this is human history. Once you determine that a certain people group is not worth living, you have no problem justifying genocide against them. Thus, the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda in the 90s. And this is why we need to know what we're against. You need to know through faith in Jesus Christ what he's against. So you're against it too in Jesus' name. We need to know what we're against. 
And we need to be willing to stand for what we're against. And if the world wants to attack us forth, then so be it. But go to your grave as a woman of conviction and character and a man of conviction and character and know exactly what you stand for so people know what you stand against. These are times that test men and women's souls. Hezekiah knew the Assyrians were coming and they're coming to take everything. Their house of worship, their gold, their wives, their children, their property, their vineyards, everything. They were coming to rape their women and just plunder them. And he could see it on the horizon. And it was a desperate time, and he took his stand. Hey, before those guys show up and threaten us everything, I'm going to let everyone know, under the God of Israel, Jehovah Almighty God, what we are against. And he's against high places, and he's against idolatry, and he's against emphasis, and he's against all these things, and I'm putting an end to it right now. This is the mark of my reign. This is who I am. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.